welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. Hello, and welcome to Mad in the Family, the podcast of Madden America's Parent Resources section. I'm Miranda Spencer, Parent Resources Editor. Today, we're going to talk about the impact of the coronavirus crisis and social distancing on adolescents taking a look at the unique needs teenagers and young adults may have and the challenges they may present for parents, caregivers, and other family members. Our guest today is Sam Himmelstein, PhD, a psychologist who specializes in working with adolescents. Dr. Himmelstein is a youth worker, author, speaker, and licensed psychologist in the state of California. Most of his work has revolved around trauma-impacted, juvenile justice-involved, and substance-using youth. He is the founder of the Center for Adolescent Studies, a multidisciplinary training institute teaching youth professionals how to build authentic relationships, practice trauma-informed care, and share mindfulness with young people. He is also the co-founder of Family First Psychotherapy, a clinic in Oakland, California, that specializes in working with children, teens, and their families. Dr. Himmelstein is a formerly incarcerated youth himself and was privileged to change from a path of drugs, violence, crime, and self-destruction to one of healing and transformation. He has written three books, most recently, Trauma-Informed Mindfulness with Teens, a guide for mental health professionals, published by W.W. Norton last year. So can you tell us a bit more about what it is you do um, and how to help listeners understand what it means to integrate mindfulness into working with struggling adolescents? Yeah, absolutely. I have two organizations that I'm associated with. One is a professional training institute where I train other educators and therapists and anyone who works with youth in building relationships, trauma-informed care, and sharing mindfulness with youth. And then the other one, which is called Family First Psychotherapy, is where I do my clinical work. And I work with youth and their families, mostly teens and their families, adults as well. Uh, and just help them with a slew of different issues, anything from trauma to substance use to uh, general anxiety and depression. And I'm probably best known for integrating mindfulness uh, and other self-awareness and contemplative practices um, with young people and with their families. Um, so that's what I'm most passionate about, and that's what how I love to spend my time. Coming from that perspective, what do you perceive are some of the biggest challenges that families with teenagers and young adults face um, now that we must all socially isolate at home? Yeah, I think this is a great question. You know, it's it's obviously a mixed bag for, for different teens, right? But what I've been seeing in my practice and with other professionals that I've been interacting with is, um, you know, you're, you're going to have some situations where uh, self-isolation feels like it's happening a lot more. You know, I worked with a with a with a client this week, for example, whose parents were really um, uh, critical of how long he was staying in his room, and um, it 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 seems to be that it wasn't that he was at it, you know physically he was staying in his room technically longer, but it was just because he wasn't going to school. It felt like he was staying in his room a lot longer than usual. Uh, you know, he would usually come home from school, go in his room, probably be in there 75%, 80, 80% of the time. And, um, you know, now he was just doing it all day. So more tension comes up sometimes. Uh, I've noticed with parents, you know, 
they're more worried about like excessive screen time, being on the phone, being on the tablet, being on the computer, um, you know, things like that. And then, of course, you know, depending on the makeup of the home, which is different for everyone, right? Um, it could lead to more arguments. It could lead to, you know, just being with somebody most of the day, 24 hours a day, and not having the regular time to, to get away from them. For example, if you don't have your own bedroom, if you can't kind of self-isolate, um, you know, that, that can lead to sometimes more arguments. It can lead to more stress. And most of the folks that I've been working with throughout this have been pretty stressed out. I mean, there's there's different ways in which teens deal with this, right? Like some don't present that stressed out. Others do. Some parents are kind of putting their 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 head to the ground and just trying to push through. Others are extremely stressed out. But this underlying level of, you know, this combination of different stressors that everyone's dealing with has been leading to sometimes more conflict, uh, has been leading to more anxiety sometimes. Um, you know, kids are, for example, um, some are, I was working with a parent the other day where it's like her 15 year old, for example, is loving this, except for the fact that he can't hang out with his girlfriend. You know, he's loving being out of school. I was working with a 17 year old a week or two before who was devastated that she, um, wasn't going to have, you know, the regular graduation and that regular ritual that, that we all get. So it really is a mixed bag. But what I would say in general is that, you know, a lot of families are on top of each other right now when they normally wouldn't be. Um, and it is just causing the type of, of stress in the relationship that might be predictable in the sense of, you know, in a normal situation, you find some way to get some respite and they're not getting that right now. So it's leading to, to different types of conflicts. Right. It sounds like it's bringing out in, in a more intense way, underlying conflicts that might already be there between the, um, the family and the teens. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, anytime you um, put folks in the room together or, or, you know, depending on what, you know, their apartment, their house, whatever it is, and you don't give them that ability to have a natural respite, whether that be school for the, for the teens, whether that be work for the parents, you know, even sometimes when school and work is hard, it's like you're getting a little bit of a, a break from the tension in those relationships. And so it's easier for all of that to bottle up and blow up a little bit faster when you don't have that. And particularly, you know, with a, you know, obviously a lot of the families that I work with are there because they're struggling in some way. You know, they don't have the best communication. They don't have the best trust. Um, there's issues going on in terms of academics or, or, or substance use or authoritarianism from the parents or whatever it is, right? And so, often, so uh, you know, you're right in a sense that oftentimes in these situations, it makes it harder. And, um, you know, I was working with a family who unfortunately was going through a divorce right before this happened. And that, yeah, it's kind of on hold right now. And the, the, you know, the two partners are living with each other still. And it just, it, it, of course, uh, they're doing the best that they can, but the, the folks that are suffering more and struggling more are the children because they're witnessing those types of conflicts every day where they had built in time to get away from each other for obvious reasons. So, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of an understatement to say that like, you know, 
if you put if you don't give folks that time apart there is much more of a likelihood that that stress kind of bubbles up to the top and more um, blowups happen you know and with all of that being said i also just want to kind of round out this uh idea with you know i've also worked with and and being cognizant of a lot of families who have been on the opposite side of the spectrum where they've really ba uh, banded together, they've bonded, they've had more family time, they've done things they normally wouldn't have done together. So that happens too. I don't want to say that that doesn't happen, but obviously with the families that I'm working with, they're coming into psychotherapy and counseling for a reason. And so those underlying issues are kind of being put at st on steroids uh, uh, during these types of times. Actually, just to clarify, you're, um, I, I would imagine you're doing telehealth right now or? Yes, technically where I am in uh, shelter in place uh, here in the Bay Area, I am considered an essential healthcare worker as a, as a psychotherapist. So I could be doing things in person. Like if I was working with a very, very like high risk client, for example, who just got out of the hospital, I had a, I had a teenager who got out of the uh, emergency department um, because uh, this person, you know, had some suicidal ideation a few weeks before the coronavirus shelter in place happened. Uh, had that person gotten out, you know, right now, I could technically see them in person if needed. But pretty much everything I'm doing is telehealth right now, just because it's safer. It makes more sense. It's it's a little bit, you know, difficult to navigate uh, for the younger kids, but um, but it's still it's still doable for sure. I'm thinking in terms of uniquely adolescent and young adult issues that could come up at this time. At this developmental stage, teenagers are developing their own separate identities, or especially if they're over 18 and they were away at school and then they had to come home. And um, have you seen instances where parents are kind of resisting obeying what society tells them they need to do, namely stay inside or do social distancing if they have to go outside. Kind of, I'm reminded of uh, an article in the Washington Post earlier in the week that was headlined, he's 18 and wants to hang with his boys and his mom hasn't been able to stop him about a kid who basically he gets up every day and, and does his thing. Um, and his mom is leaving sticky notes all over the house of please protect us and please don't do this. And, you know, he's still doing his thing because, you know, he's 18 now. Um, and I, I find that kind of scary, but is that, how do you address something like that with that? I need to self-determine that an adolescent has. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, you know, definitely uh, I'm just, I'm thinking about the youth I work with overall. Uh, I, the the last program I ran before shelter in place happened, I was leading a day long mindfulness and meditation um, event at a youth correctional facility here in California, and this was like kind of the big house in a way. It wasn't just a county level juvenile hall; it was a state level correctional facility. And this was on the Friday before the Monday that shelter in place happened here in the Bay Area. And we were having this conversation, you know, about the coronavirus and, you know, how it was kind of ramping up. And there were a number of young men that I was working with. These were all older teenagers, you know, anywhere from 17 to 19. And um, we had this conversation 
about the virus, you know, about basically the pandemic. And a lot of these young men were kind of playing it down. Like, is this really a thing? Is the, is the news just overblowing this? And I thought some of them were genuine questions that were coming up. And then also there's this other thing that happens that you talked, you know, that, that you just talked about and alluded to, which is, you know, when a young person is individuating and they're becoming more autonomous, there is a natural, um, this doesn't happen for everybody, of course, but for a lot of the youth I've worked with, I've, I've seen this in practice. Um, there is a natural kind of phase where it's easy for them to think, to, to, to not really think about themselves getting hurt. There's kind of like this invincibility defense mechanism that happens. And I think it's actually a way for youth to subconsciously uh, experiment and take risks and become that adult that they're in the process of becoming in a way it's kind of like a subconscious uh, rites of passage. And um, so uh, again, this doesn't happen with every single youth. Uh, everyone has different personalities and everything like that, but I've, I've certainly seen this a lot. And particularly in my line of work where I'm working with folks who are struggling or been in trouble in some way, uh, we get a lot of those young folks so that definitely is the real phenomenon. And I think that's at play when you hear about these stories in the Washington Post, when you hear about the, um, you know, the spring breakers uh, that pretty much, you know, uh, didn't take into account any, any of the recommended guidelines. I can't remember if, if, you know, those areas were in shelter in place at the time. But I remember just seeing that on the news just a couple of weeks ago where it's like the coronavirus is a pandemic that's killing a bunch of people. And here are, you know, a bunch of young adults essentially huddled together on the beach, you know, engaging in spring break. So um, so I, I definitely think that's at play. And, and part of it is probably that defense mechanism of invincibility that comes up for some of these young folks. Part of it is probably, you know, we've heard far and wide in the media that that this isn't going to mostly hurt young people um and the big risk there which i think you're you know you alluded to and i'll even pair it here is that uh, just because it doesn't hurt you it doesn't mean that you can't contract it and then give it to somebody else that would you know then in turn hurt them um and, and that's the big thing it's it's learning to get a young person to think beyond their immediate context. And from a brain development perspective, uh, that's a difficult thing to do because literally their prefrontal cortex, the frontal lobe, that part of their brain, which is the last part of the brain to develop in a human being. And also the most recent from an evolutionary perspective in human beings, um, that's still developing when somebody is 16, 17, 18, 19, 20 years old. Um, so getting them to even take perspective, it, it's definitely possible. Absolutely. 100%. I mean, again, with everything I'm saying here, I want to just put out there that I've worked with some very amazing, transformative, thoughtful uh, uh, young folks in my career. Um, and it just takes, you know, the best thing that I've seen happen uh, or the best results I've seen come from building authentic relationships, building trust. And instead of just kind of trying to point the finger or wave the finger and say, don't you know this could hurt somebody? Um, because logically, they probably do know that. It's just like smoking cigarettes. If you go up to somebody and say, don't you know cigarettes can cause cancer? 
they will probably blow cigarette smoke in your face, right? Like they, like it's not, it's not necessarily an education thing. It's much more of a, how do I get this person? How do I meet this person uh, uh, so that they can be motivated to do something different? And it's very difficult when, you know, like in the Washington Post article, the 18 year olds coming home and they're striving for autonomy and they just want to hang out with their friends. That peer group really is the second family. Um, so, you know, having interventions and having conversations that really help them uh, understand from a relational standpoint what's going on, you know, talking about the real people in their lives, like from the mom's perspective or from the parents' perspective, their parents or the, the grandparents of, uh, um, you know, the child or the people in their community and things like that. And even having conversations with the other parents and sitting everyone down, you know, through zoom or, or on the phone or something like that and being like, how can we come up with a plan where you can all still be connected socially, but not physically, you know, uh, those, you know, rather than just saying stop um, is going to be a much more effective route. It's not always going to work. You know, uh, sometimes these are, you know, kids who um, are pretty stubborn and those are the folks that usually end up in my office. Um, uh, but it's going to be better than just trying to say, don't you know that this could, you know, you could put somebody in danger um, because usually it's not an educational issue, you know? Great question. It sounds like um, if you engage them in finding solutions together, they don't feel as, I guess, bossed around. Yeah, one of the um, one of the the authors that I'm a big fan of is the guy named Michael Riera. He wrote a book called Uncommon Sense for Parenting for Teenagers, and um, one of the concepts he has in there is that a te- when when your child is becoming a teenager, right, they're going through this historical phase where there was usually some form of a rites of passage where they were transitioning into adulthood. And we as parents go through, you know, when, when our children are younger, we're essentially micromanagers. We move from like a micromanager role. We have complete control over their life when they're obviously infants and toddlers and young children. And as they get older, we still tend to manage them. And what, what, what teens are really looking for, for the most part, at least when they get to, especially that older teen phase, you know, closer to the end of high school, they're looking for somebody who's more of a consultant rather than a micromanager. And that's, and that is a difficult thing for a lot of the parents to wrap their heads around. I mean, that concept alone in practice is probably about half of the family therapy, um, at least, you know, with the parents that can be really authoritarian at times and have a struggle letting go of control. And so, for example, one, you know, just to come back to what we're talking about, the um, in practice, what does that mean? It means when you want to set boundaries in some way, like, for example, asking, you know, talking about uh, social distancing with your with with your team's friends, instead of saying you need to do this, this and that, which would be a manager or, a, or, or really a micromanager, it would be bringing them to the table, empowering them, letting them have some autonomy and being like, can we figure this out together? Because I'm scared. You know, I'm scared that you're going to come in and contract a disease from a friend of a friend of a friend, give it to me, and then I'm going to give it to grandma, you know? So it's a little bit of this 
coming at them from the consultant rather than the manager role, and a lot of authentic self-awareness and authentic self-disclosure. A lot of parents will say, you need to do this, you need to do that, and you know, become aggressive. But really what they're feeling on the inside is, I feel scared. I feel scared. I'm going to give this to my parents and that there's going to be a death in the family. And learning how to be present with that and express that skillfully, um, along with empowering, you know, especially the older teenagers, it's not foolproof. It's not always going to work. I just want to put that out there. But um, but it's going to give you a much better shot at coming together and collaborating on on uh, some form of a boundary around this. And, and, and also, it's going to give the teen a much better chance to just be open. Like if you think about their perspective, they're, they've been a kid, they're moving into teenagehood, they are um, uh, looking for autonomy, they're looking for independence. Most of their lives, again, for the most part, I'm talking about, I'm talking in generalities, most of their lives have been being told what to do by parents, by teachers, by counselors sometimes, probation officers, adults in their lives. So when you as a parent, and, and this won't happen overnight, and I've, I mean, I've seen some success happen really um, in, in short periods of time, but usually it's a process. But when you change that tone with them, sometimes it's like a breath of fresh air for them. Um, I've literally had an experience where I've helped a parent do that in a family counseling session, and I've... Uh, seen a, a, a teenage client take a sigh in relief, you know? <laughs> um, so it, it, it's a great question though. I mean, this is definitely um, uh, something that a lot of parents and families with teenagers are, are struggling with at this time. Yeah. Um, conversely, I imagine that for some kids, the anxiety around the pandemic may cause them to temporarily regress and be more needy of their uh, adults in their lives, do you think? Yeah, I mean, it, and like we said at the outset, I mean, the key here is teens are really a mixed bag. They are coming into their personalities at this point in time as they're transitioning into adulthood. So that basically means there's a lot of diversity that's represented in their experience. I've worked with teens who, you know, I, I get it, I get asked the question all the time, like, how do you teach mindfulness to, to gangbangers, to, you know, um, people with tattoos on their face in the prison system, et cetera, et cetera. And I always tell them the same thing, kind of chuckling back. Well, it's, it's, it's crazy. If you treat people like human beings, there's a lot that they can do. Right. And I use that to go in to say, you know, everybody who is in a gang doesn't have the same personality. Every teenager in there isn't like kind of a hardened, aggressive person. There's people with a lot of different personalities and it's the same things with teens at large. So certainly I've worked with some, some teenagers who they just are more lend more to the anxious and worry and nervous side of the spectrum. And when that happens, if you think about um, somebody's, um, you know, optimal zone of physiological and social and emotional comfort, when somebody is out of that zone, basically when somebody is emotionally uncomfortable, uh, it would be what we would call coming uh, uh, out of what's called the window of tolerance. And from a physiological perspective, that's what happens when somebody is getting traumatized. So anyways, I say all this to say that when, when somebody gets extremely uncomfortable and they're triggered and it gets close whether it's trauma or not, but it gets close to that level 
of toxic stress, which can definitely happen during a pandemic because it can feel very uncertain. There's a lot of unknowns. Um, a lot of teens are searching for the known in many ways. They're searching for that autonomy. And so when that happens, they can regress to whatever, um, you know, personality and defense mechanisms and protective mechanisms were there prior to this. And for some kids that is relying more on their parents and, and, um, you know, I had a, I had a kid I was working with, um, not too long ago. Uh, this was a few months before the pandemic, but, um, they essentially, um, went through a really tough experience in their life and they're the oldest in their family, uh, excuse me, the oldest of all the siblings in the family. And at about 13 years old, he went through a really tough thing in his life. And he has a number of siblings, the youngest being like three or four. And he regressed to kind of the same behaviors as the five, six, seven-year-olds um, in terms of, you know, holding his mother's hand, um, uh, you know, wanted to be comforted physically all the time. So that is a very real phenomenon. And it's hard to say, like, who that will happen for just when when we're pushed up against the wall with this much stress that a pandemic creates uh people regress to their uh organic protective mechanisms the things that have developed and been conditioned over times well now to bring it to your specialty how do you deal with these challenges using mindfulness and other evidence-based techniques from your practice um what would you tell the parents in using mindfulness and what would you tell the young people? Yeah, great question. It's not too different between the two, although of course there are some differences with parents, you know, what I find myself doing the most with parents. And of course this was happening prior to the pandemic, but um, certainly is much more of a focus now is I really help them um, understand that their own self care and resilience influences greatly their families, their teens, their partners, uh, self-care and resilience. So for a lot of parents, um, it's really easy to get into the mode of taking care of others before I take care of myself. There's a lot of nurturing that happens in parenthood, right, by default. And so what I'll do is I'll help them understand that you know, if you're not attuned, if you're extremely stressed out all the time, if you're extremely reactive because you're anxious, because you're worried about your future, about the future of your children, about are they going to be able to graduate from high school, you know, all of these different things. If you're not taking care of yourself, that can negatively influence, you know, uh, just the whole family system. And conversely, if you are taking care of yourself, it can have a positive impact because you're modeling it. It gives you a chance to talk to your to your children, to your teens, to your partner, if you have a partner, uh, or to other family members um, uh, about what you're doing. And so I use that kind of like as a framework to be like, there's many different ways we can take care of ourselves. And some of those rely on other people. Some of those involve you know, a lot of social things like getting a massage, for example, helps people relax, but not a lot of people are getting massages right now because of social distancing. So I frame the practice of mindfulness as an inner resilience and inner self-care tool that we can't always control what comes up in us. We can't always control when we're angry or anxious or what have you. And we certainly are uh, being 
very, very highly encouraged to be controlled physically, to not go out, to not be with other people. So mindfulness is really a practice that you can do on your own just in a couple of minutes uh, and sometimes even less to help you learn to manage all of that experience, right? So in a way, I'm there's a lot of, um, you know, gaining that buy-in. And I do that in a very similar way that I work with youth. With youth, if anybody, you know, anybody who's ever been to any of my uh, talks or my online trainings or anything like that, I'm really, really big on building an authentic relationship uh, first and foremost. And that's what I call relational mindfulness. It's just, it's just being very intentional and aware of the relationship as it develops rather than being passive about it. And that creates receptivity and trust. And then when I say, hey, you know, you've been struggling with X, Y, Z lately in my life, I've found this practice to be really helpful um, for, for reasons X, Y, Z. Uh, are you willing to give it a shot? Are you willing to try it? Most youth will at least be willing to try it. If they're willing to try it, there's a chance they can have a positive experience with it and gain some proficiency in it. It's not too dissimilar in terms of my relational approach with the with the with the teens that I work with and with the parents. I'm building that relationship. Trust and safety, interpersonal safety is a big part of that. And then when we get to that doorstep of the practice, I'm really looking at you know at the unique factors of the person or the people in front of me to help determine, you know, what types of mindfulness practices will will, will I share with them, how long they will be, will it be formal mindfulness meditation? Will would be more informal mindfulness that kind of depends on their makeup if they've experienced trauma and so on and so forth but most people that i've worked with when i build that relationship and we build this kind of safe container are open to it and uh, have found a lot of benefit uh, even in just being able to you know pause for a few moments and breathe and be present to whatever experience is coming up with an attitude of non-reactivity and non-judgment in a way it's a respite from uh, a lot of the the external chaos that's going on and so usually i'm teaching something like that like an inner form of resilience inner self-care strategy to parents and to youth and that is also contextualized in what they can do in their environment. Of course, I'm helping a lot of parents right now who are working from home and, and uh, having uh, struggles with a predictable routine and motivation, helping them do normal things that they would be doing if they were going to work, like have a routine, wake up at the same time, eat lunch at the same time. Here's how to manage your schedule, your child's schedule with their younger kids in terms of uh, homeschooling, all of those external behavioral factors, of course, also help so that they can have the, the bandwidth to schedule in, so to speak, an inner awareness practice like mindfulness. So um, for people who aren't in a formal therapeutic setting, who are just listeners at home, what does Mindfulness 101 look like um, if they're just saying, you know, I'm, I would like to try this, but I'm not you know, going to be having a session. So what, what are some of the things that mindfulness means? Cause people have a lot of different ideas of, of what that looks like. And I, I understand that it can look different for everybody else, but for a teenager to use mindfulness or to their parent to use it, or for it to be a family mindfulness hour, what are some simple suggestions that maybe anyone can try? 
Yeah, great, great question. Thank you for presencing that. Um, I'll just say first that one of the main misconceptions that I hear is that because I I travel around the country or I was traveling around the country before this pandemic hit, and I teach educators and therapists and parents and work with kids, right? And um, uh, sharing mindfulness. So the main misconception I hear that I think is really important to clarify at the outset is mindfulness means present moment awareness with an attitude of non-reactivity. What I didn't just say there is that mindfulness means taking deep breaths and calming down. Calming strategies can be very, very powerful. And yes, you can get very good at them if you practice. But mindfulness strategies are there for when you can't calm down. Mindfulness strategies are, are not uh, do not depend on being calm. So uh, I, I wanted to say that at the outset because a lot of people have that misconception. And what, what I've seen when people walk away unclear about what the real definition and practice of mindfulness is, is that when they first, when they try to do mindfulness on their own, they can't do it. They can't have a clear mind. They can't calm down. So they say to themselves, I can't do this. This doesn't work. And then they don't put in the necessary practice to become proficient in the practice. Well, if you hold the idea that mindfulness is simply present moment awareness with an attitude of non-reactivity, then whatever your experience is, that's okay. If you're angry, if you're anxious, if you're uh, having a flurry of thoughts, if you're feeling great or joy, whatever it is, that's okay. It's about learning to be present to that with a non-reactive attitude, with a balanced mind. So that's where we start. And now to, to answer your question specifically around um, what can you do? Uh, this is an excellent question because there's actually a lot of things you can do. There are um, what we would call formal mindfulness meditations, and that's what a lot of people uh, kind of think of when they think of mindfulness with somebody kind of sitting in a particular way and closing their eyes, which, of course, you don't necessarily have to do that, but you essentially follow a particular um, mental strategy. For a lot of people who start, they, they learn to become aware of their breath. Um, and so the meditation, the instruction is essentially uh, becoming aware of their breath wherever it's easiest in the nostrils and the belly and the chest, and then sustaining your awareness on the breath. Um, and then whenever the mind wanders away, which is natural, which will definitely happen, it's bringing it back to the breath. So it's using your breath as like a beacon or an anchor to learn sustained awareness. And when you do that over time, you can essentially also learn non-reactivity. And so that can be done for, you know, many minutes. It can be done for 10, 15, 20 minutes. It can also be done for one or two minutes. Um, that would be called, that would be like a formal exercise. And there's a slew of formal meditation exercises that I'm happy to go over with you, you know, if, if that makes sense. On the other side of the spectrum is what we would call informal or daily mindfulness. Again, the definition being present moment awareness with an attitude of non-reactivity, you don't have to be formally meditating to practice mindfulness, right? Like for the listeners out there who are listening right now, you can have a present moment focus, a present moment awareness with an attitude of non-reactivity as you're listening to this podcast, as you're listening um, to the show, right? You can do that when you're talking with your children. You can do that when you're folding laundry or washing dishes or or um, going for a walk, for example, right? So it doesn't depend on formal meditation. And now 
so there's a lot of things you can do in terms of um, just gentle moments where you pause. You don't have to do anything formal. You don't have to sit in a certain way, but you're essentially tuning in to what's authentic for you. Literally asking yourself the question, how do I feel right now? And then leaving a couple moments of room for being authentic and honest with yourself about what comes up. That, in a way, is an informal mindfulness practice. It's an attunement practice. And so that can be done without formal meditation. Now, if you want to take it a step further and do um, like activities with your family where you get everybody together um, and do, you know, kind of mindful minutes or, um, uh, uh, get everybody together and do different types of activities. That's definitely something that can be done. And there's a lot of different resources out there. There's a lot of children's books. There's a lot of books that, uh, there's not a lot of books that, that target teens specifically with mindfulness, but there is some, uh, so my books target professionals that works with teens. And I have a calling colleague, uh, um, Zung Vo, who wrote the book, The Mindful Teen, that speaks to teens directly, which is an excellent, excellent resource out there. Um, but you can essentially bring folks together and, and practice. And again, there's no formal way to do that. Uh, that could probably be a whole different podcast episode in and of itself of like the specific ways to do this. Um, but the key is, is leaning in with the relationship first. Uh, rather than saying we should do this right now because I want to, uh, or because it's, even because this is going to help. Uh, when that happens, teens have more of a chance of kind of shutting down and putting up barriers. Um, but if you think about the relationship first and you say, Hey, could, could, could we, could we give me a solid, do me a solid. And can we try this out? It's something I really want to try. I've been stressed out. I know you may not be as stressed out to me. This may be a parent talking to their teenager. I know you may not be as stressed out as I have been, which may, may be the case or they may just be showing that they haven't been stressed, right? Um, I know you haven't been as stressed out as me, but I really want to do this as a family. I'm a little worried. I'm a little scared. Let's try this out. And whatever, whatever happens, it's fine. You know, like doing something like that and just being a little bit more organic with it. There's a little bit better of a shot of, of them coming through. You know, and, it, and and also it's important to just know it may be a process. Like it's okay if they're a little resistant at first. Like we talked about before, that defense mechanism of invincibility is there for a reason. It's there because they may actually deep down on a, on a deeper level be feeling anxious or be feeling a, a lot of worry or uncertainty about the future. And they may not want to touch those feelings because it's too scary at this time, you know? So knowing that as a parent, as a kind of head of family is also important as well. Yeah. Um, could you clarify the term non-reactivity? Because on one hand, you're saying emotions come up and they're okay. But so it's like you're in a way you're already, if you're having an emotion, you are reacting. But I think you mean something different when you say non-reactivity. Yes. In the mindfulness world, uh, when we say things like non-reactivity, we really mean keeping a, 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 an equanimous mind, right? So non-reactivity non doesn't mean the, um, the lack of a internal experience. It means training oneself to be non-reactive when anger or when anxiety comes up. So we can't control when, for the most part at least, we, we, we can't control 
when we're stressed out, we can't just flip the switch and say, oh, I don't want to be stressed anymore. You know, for the most part, people can't do that. And that's why mindfulness is such a powerful thing. So it's when those things come up, sometimes we also use the word acceptance. And just to be clear, it doesn't mean acceptance, like it's okay uh, for, for, you know, I'm, I'm okay with being angry right now. It doesn't mean that it just means instead of pushing away and acting like you aren't angry, you're facing it head on. So you're accepting that it's there in a sense that it's a real true experience. And then when it is there, it's learning how to not react to that anger further. It's learning how to take a curious kind of open mindset to that anger, for example, and have that, that stance of what is this anger? Um, you know, uh, what is it comprised of? It's my heart is pounding. My body is getting warmer. My fists are clenched or something like that. There's a flurry of thoughts that are coming through, right? It's having that space between you and the emotion or the experience itself. Almost like a, an external observer in a way. In a way. Sort of standing out a little outside yourself. Yes, in a way. One of, one of the best ways to think about it also is disidentification. So you're not, some people say detached, but I don't really like that term because detached is kind of like, it's this idea that there's no connection. Obviously, this is happening inside of you, so it's, so it's, so it's coming up, right? But you're not over-identified with it. You are not your thoughts. You are not your anger. It's just an experience that's coming up. So yeah, it's kind of like you're that observer in a way. And um, what happens when you're less reactive is that there's less judgment too. Uh, when you're having a tough experience, for example, oftentimes one of the things that makes it harder is yourself because you're critical of yourself or you're either like, I really hate this right now. This experience is terrible. Saying to yourself, this experience is terrible or feeling that way is a layer of judgment that makes the, the physical pain, for example, worse, or it makes the anger worse. So it's learning how to peel that layer back. That's what we really mean by non-reactivity. And um, it's, it's difficult. It's hard. It's, but it's also something that you can get better at with training. Um, and that's really the key piece. Like there, when, if you try some of these practices out, um, and you find difficulty in finding the ability to, um, just be present to your anger or anxiety without spiraling really deep down, that's okay. I mean, it's, it's a tough time right now. And one of the things we want to do is really be tender with ourselves and practice self-compassion internally just know that with practice and with time, you can get better at it. And that's why that's why mindfulness is practiced over time. Right. That's why we say a mindfulness practice, I guess, suppose. Exactly. That's exactly right. So resources. Um, I understand you have a webinar coming up that will have passed by the time this um, podcast comes out. Um, tell us a little about your webinar, I get, will, will people, what, what is it? And will people be able to access it after the fact? Yes, absolutely. Actually, two webinars will have came and passed probably by the time this is live and um, they will be able, folks will be able to access them. So my two organizations that I mentioned earlier, one is called the Center for Adolescent Studies. Um, and I, uh, did a webinar essentially where I focused on self-care and resilience and contextualized mindfulness in that for helping professionals. So anybody who's in the helping profession, whether you're a therapist, nurse, you know, any, anything, anyone that's an essential worker uh, these days. Um, and we had 
an exorbitant amount of folks attend that. It was amazing. There was a tremendous response. Um, if you go to Center for Adolescent Studies .com, it will be up there as a free course. I put it, I did it live as a webinar and then I spliced it and put it in my learning management system online so folks can uh, kind of go through it at their own pace. And then in my other organization, Family First Psychotherapy, uh, we did a very similar webinar on self-care and resilience, but this one is really focused on parents. And so this one, it's very introductory. Um, uh, but it, it really, whereas the other one was focused more on helping professionals, this one focuses much more on your own self-care, your family self-care and resilience, and then also just some of the things that kind of tend to come up at home. We focus on that, con that home context a little bit more. And that will, you know, there'll be information on our website, familyfirstpsychotherapy.com, where folks can um, gain that information. And we're really planning to... Um, create more robust uh, resources specifically for parents. Me and my partner who run that organization are just very passionate about working with parents and families. You know, my expertise is with the teens and families, his expertise is with the, the younger kids and families. And we are in the midst of developing some, some content that will be held kind of like in an evolving uh, library online for parents as resources where they can just go, you know, uh, uh, essentially click a topic of anything from, you know, how do I practice self-care and, and mindfulness to, you know, my teenager um, isn't practicing social distancing. What's the type of conversation we should be having with them, you know? Um, so absolutely that those will be uh, resources that, that parents can access in the future. Great. Is there anything we haven't talked about um, on this topic that you would like to add? You know, we, I think the only thing I'd like to add, and we've alluded to this several times is, and I'll just say it explicitly as we end is, you know, it's okay if you're having a tough time out there. Um, I know different levels. I've worked with a lot of parents, so different parents, some can be really perfectionistic at times and want to have the perfect schedule, the perfect routine for their kids. And again, I just want to highlight that for a lot of parents that that inclination to nurture first is a very real thing and to take care of others first before yourself is a very real thing. And I just want to say, like, if you're having a tough time, that would actually be normal uh, in this context. And it's really, really important to to put time into taking care of yourself and to practicing self-care and to building resilience for yourself because that will have a positive impact on your family if you do it the right way for yourself. And part of that is self-compassion and being tender with yourself and, um, you know, when necessary, seeking the resources um, to, to be able to take care of yourself. Sometimes you can do it on your own. Sometimes you may need professional help and that's okay too. So I think I'd like to just kind of leave off with that because I know there are a lot of people that are struggling out there right now. Right. Great. Okay. Thank you. Our guest has been psychologist Sam Himmelstein of the Center for Adolescent Studies and Family First Psychotherapy. You can visit the center's website at centerforadolescentstudies.com and Sam's own website at samhimmelstein.com. I'm Miranda Spencer, and this has been Mad in the Family. Thank you for listening to the Mad in America podcast. Visit madinamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.